Hi, this is John Olson. Thank you for joining us on the National Security This Week podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe so you'll receive a new edition of the podcast every week. Please leave us a review as well and tell others about us. And please contact us with any feedback or opinions you might have by emailing nstw at kymnradio.net. We hope you find the show informative and interesting. Thanks again. National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Hey, everyone. Good morning. It's Wednesday, May 25th, and you've joined us for National Security This Week. We get together here on KYMN Radio every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security. And we're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore American national security. We're back to the topic of climate change and national security today. We'll weave our way through both throughout today's discussion. With us to cover this topic are two top field researchers, both of whom concentrate much of their work in Alaska with a concentration on areas of permafrost. Dr. Katie Walter-Anthony is an aquatic ecologist and professor at the University of Alaska Fairbanks who discovered methane-bubbling hotspots in Arctic lakes. Her scientific research has led to breakthroughs in the role of permafrost thaw, leading to methane released as an important cause of climate warming. She's also determined that over long timescales, Arctic lakes absorb atmospheric carbon, having a cooling effect on climate. Field science is particularly important in her research. Dr. Anthony spends large portions of the year, especially during the winter months, collecting information about methane and permafrost at remote locations in Alaska and Siberia. She became fluent in the Russian language at the age of 16 when she spent a year in 1992 and 1993 in Russia after the fall of the former Soviet Union. This skill and interest in Russian language enabled Dr. Anthony to return to live and conduct detailed scientific investigations in Siberia for extended periods of time during the past 20 years. Her work has also taken her to numerous frozen lakes in other parts of the Arctic, including Finland, Sweden, and Greenland. Dr. Anthony has published her research in leading scientific journals, including Nature, Science, Nature Geoscience, and Scientific American. She has reported her findings to the U.S. White House and to U.S. Senators. Her research work has also been featured in National Geographic Magazine, Discover Magazine, The New York Times, The Los Angeles Times, National Public Radio's All Things Considered, The History Channel, Discovery Channel, The BBC, and even Leonardo DiCaprio's film Ice on Fire. Our second guest is Janelle Marie Anousik Sharp. Janelle Sharp was born and raised in Anchorage, Alaska. Her mother is originally from Kotzebue, Alaska, and her father hailed from Jefferson City, Missouri. She earned a Bachelor of Science in Chemistry from the University of Alaska, Anchorage, and is finishing her thesis for a Master of Science degree in Geoscience through the University of Alaska Fairbanks. Janelle has been working on different environmental projects for Nana Regional Corporation since 2015, and more specifically on the Methane Seep Project that was featured on the PBS TV show Nova since, ni- since 2017. Dr. Katie, Anthony, and Janelle Sharp, welcome to National Security This Week. Good morning. Thank you for having us. So I know it's a I'm going to ask uh, both of you very quickly, where are you at? You and I, we're on Zoom. Uh, where are you at, Janelle? I'm in Anchorage, Alaska. I think it's pretty early there right now, isn't it? Yes, 6.06 (laughs) a.m. Well, thank you for getting up so early to join us today. And Katie, where are you at this morning? I am uh, at a farm in just west of St. Peter, Minnesota. So my husband is a farmer. Our our kids are sixth generation. And we have two homes. So Minnesota and Fairbanks, Alaska. Um, I'm heading to Fairbanks tomorrow, but today I'm here. So we caught you at a good time just before you head back to yes. Alaska. All right. And and we'll actually talk a little bit more about your, your time here in Minnesota when we get to the end of the show today. So, Do- Dr. Anthony, if we could, let's begin with you. What drew you to the science of aquatic ecology, and how did that lead you to study methane hotspots in Arctic lakes? Well, ever since I was, I grew up in Eugene, Oregon, and the Reno. So the Sierra Nevada mountains were my b- backyard. Um and I think as a, well, with a kind of a turbulent childhood and then the insecure 
of adolescence, lakes to me were a getaway. They were soulless and peace and there was nobody looking at me there. And I was just away from the world's problems at lakes. So I originally just was drawn to their beauty and um, the reprieve that they offered from the world. <laughs> As I got older, I became curious about them. What's under the water? Why? They were beautiful, but why are these lakes important? And so I looked for opportunities to study lakes um, in Lake Tahoe, but also Lake Baikal in Siberia and, and started started asking and learning to answer scientific questions and then eventually moved up to the Arctic where there are millions of lakes. And uh, again, answering why are these millions of lakes, many of them look like mud puddles, why are they important? And that became kind of a career focus. Okay. And, and, and the methane specifically, what kind of drew you to taking a hard look at that? Well, that was the connection, I think, between my background in Russia and Russian and a project. Um, my PhD advisor at the University of Alaska Fairbanks had been already working with a Siberian, Sergei Zimov, for um, about a decade. And they had been looking at what happens when permafrost thaws. And they had taken a sample, a bubble sample from a lake in Siberia and radiocarbon dated it. So you, you, you have this bubble and in the bubble is gas. And they, that gas was methane. So they took that methane and methane is a carbon with four hydrogens. They stripped the hydrogens off and were left just with pure graphite carbon that was in the methane. And they radiocarbon dated it. And the age on that methane carbon was the exact same age as the woolly mammoths and the grasses that the mammoths were eating during the last ice age. So they knew that this methane coming out of Siberian lakes was evidence the permafrost was thawing and ancient carbon was getting converted to greenhouse gases, but they needed someone. Sergey was um, not the person to go out and do a lot of rigorous field work. He's an extreme Siberian, <laughs> but he puts his energy um, more into logistical, navigating the difficult <laughs> difficulty of the Siberian terrain. And um, it was not his philosophy to collect a lot of data points. He had proven his idea that the permafrost was releasing carbon in the form of methane, but um, it was up to somebody with a lot more energy to collect all the data. So that became my job. All right. And, and, and Janelle, how about you? Uh, what, what brought you to this science? So I started, as mentioned before, with Nana Regional Corporation in 2015. And in 2017, we did a community outreach to the Nana region. So we call it the, Nan the Northwest Arctic Nana region. Um, instead of having tribes in Alaska, we have regional corporations. So working for Nana, um, there was a push to investigate different um, energy resources within the region to provide power, which is really, really expensive in rural Alaska to local communities. So this was, it kind of, it stemmed from that. We did a community outreach program to all the small villages around Kotzebue. And um, we interviewed elders and talked to community members. And it evolved into a more focused. So the first question we asked everyone was, are there any signs of gas or oil in the region? So looking for oil slicks on the surface of lakes or any water bodies and then um, any bubbles in the water and that evolved you know that it's really common to have bubbles in lake beds and in um, surface ice of the river and that evolved into identifying this one seep that a local charter pilot saw every year and it was open for long periods of time over the winter and then it closed up for a very short period of time in the winter but then it opened up first thing in the springtime and he saw it every day flying over um, over this one lake in the region and so that was an identifier and we were working with Katie at the time to try to identify um, the types of methanes because there's all different kinds. There's 
um, just, you know, natural sources from organic matter being decomposed from the bottom of lake beds. And then there's also larger sources like natural methane or natural gas that can collect and then slowly be released. And so we're looking for the larger energy source and Katie was helping us with that. And so that's how we all got linked up on this project. All right. Uh, so, Dr. Anthony, I, I did read your book, Chasing Lakes. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Uh, could you explain what a bubble trap is? So we, we've been talking about methane. Obviously, you have to capture that methane in some way so that you can study it. Uh, what is a bubble trap, and how is it used to collect samples of methane from, from these lakes in the, above the Arctic Circle? Well, a bubble trap is not really something you can just go buy off the shelf or order from <laughs> scientific. <laughs> It's um, every, every person, there's not too many people that make bubble traps and every article you read about anyone who's tried to do it, they all kind of come up with their own homemade design. And it's essentially a funnel. So bubbles are coming out of the lake bed and you need to capture them. So there's a, you've got a funnel. And for me, I was in Siberia when I first invented my bubble trap. Um, and I just used really garbage I could find along the roadside. I used greenhouse plastic and scrap wire to make a ring and then made a little skirt out of the, out of the plastic sheeting and funneled whatever was coming into that trap up into a recycled beer bottle or water, plastic water bottle that was inverted. So the bubbles would go up through the mouth of the bottle and then collect in it. And then I put a little tube and a valve at the top so that I could um, transfer it into sample bottles and analyze the gas in the lab. All right. So I'll ask the next question of both of you. You know, Katie, you and I are both in Minnesota right now. Uh, we have some pretty cold winters here, but, but Alaska is still very, very cold, right? Uh, what is it like trying to do this science in these bitterly cold conditions uh, in Alaska and elsewhere above the Arctic Circle in the middle of winter? Uh, could you talk a little bit about the dangers of pursuing this science above the Arctic Circle in the winter? Janelle, do you want to start with that from the perspective of a lot of people that live off the land? And Well, <laughs> how about you start with it, Katie? Sure. Because you gave sure. me okay. a really great, you know, you gave me really great advice. I came out to work with you up in Fairbanks and you, and we were, when I first started with Katie, we, um, we would go out to Fairbanks Lake to practice collecting gas and the way that I was managing my equipment wasn't up to Katie's standards. <laughs> um, it's really I'm her, I'm her master's degree advisor. In case <laughs> anyone's wondering. <laughs> but I learned so much because of that, you know, um, being scolded a little bit, it's totally fine as long as you're learning a lesson. So, so she scolded me because I wasn't managing my gloves properly. And that's something that you have to keep track of your gear when you're out in the Arctic, in the snow. If you lose a glove, you know, you lose a whole day's work. You can't just stay out without one glove. So managing all of your gear is really important. Um, keeping track of what color your skin color is while you're out. And, you know, we're working pretty much with bare hands in the water when we're collecting methane. You can use gloves, but those get slippery. So managing the bottles and the stoppers for those, um, you don't want to lose a bottle stopper in the water and not have an extra one because then that's thousands of dollars that you had sourced to a project and now you have to go home. So those are just some things that I definitely picked up immediately working with Katie. <laughs> um, well, we use the winter in particular because the ice traps the methane gas. It, you, a person can collect it. It's, it's also coming out in the summer and a lot of times more in the summer, but working on that open water with ripples or rain prevents us from seeing the bubbles as well. But when you have ice, it traps the bubbles, it shows us where they are, and it's a stable platform. Plus, it's interesting to find out how much gas is coming out in the winter. Um, when I, I've been in Alaska since I came up in 1996, but when I talk to people who've been there much longer, they actually say the winters are warmer now than they used to be. Okay. Um, and we do go out at minus 30, but and sometimes minus 40, certainly when there's a wind chill. 
Um, but a lot of times we try to limit it to negative 20, something like that. And I think one of the dangers, so there's obviously hypothermia or a lot of these sites are very remote. So if you were to get stranded or have an airplane fail, um, you have to be able to survive. But just on any lake that we're at, there's always the danger of falling through the ice because even though the ice can get to be six feet thick in the winter, where the methane gas is bubbling, it's really thin. Um, and you don't always see it. There can be a thin crust of ice or snow, and it just makes the lake look like a normal, safe, frozen lake. But really, there's great big holes. And so we've had snow machines go through those holes. I've fallen through almost every winter. And because I always popped back out, as long as you had a change of clothes, I was fine. I actually got a little bit arrogant about, oh, not a big deal to fall through <laughs> back out. But um, over the years, I've met... In, in, actually two different cases where one was an 80 year old man who lived on the edge of a lake in the Brooks range. And I think what was keeping him alive is he had to go out and chop firewood every day, but his water source was one of these methane holes and he would walk out and creep up to the hole and get a bucket of water and carry it back to his house. Well, one day he fell through his hole and he could see his house, but he could not get back out. And his wife was washing dishes at the counter and she never looked up for 20 minutes. He was in this hole and didn't, and he was feeling all the, all the heat leaving his body. Finally, his dog crept up to the hole and he grabbed the dog's collar and the dog helped pull him out. Um, and I heard that type of thing more than once. So I now have even more respect for the danger of, of falling through the ice. People have lost family members falling through the ice. Mm. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, and we're broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guests today are Dr. Katie Walter-Anthony and Janelle Sharp, and we're discussing climate change in Alaska and broader considerations for American national security. Uh, Dr. Anthony and, and Janelle Sharp, let's get into the science. Uh, so, so, Dr. Anthony, I read your book, which you just launched, uh, Chasing Lakes, and you describe through really elegant storytelling uh, and scientific explanations that even a history major like me can understand. Uh, what is exactly, you know, what, what's happening up in these Arctic lakes? Uh, can you explain to our audience uh, what a thermokarst lake is and what is happening in these Arctic lakes as the permafrost melts? Yep. Well, permafrost or perennially frozen ground covers about 24% of the northern hemisphere land area. And in a lot of places, the permafrost is not just frozen soil, but it also has ice, massive ice, ice blocks, ice wedges as big as garages. And when that ground ice melts, the ice was actually supporting the ground surface. And so when the ice melts, you get a sinkhole or a depression. And if that depression fills with water, you have a little pond and the pond absorbs heat from the sun. The water warms and it causes the ice around the pond to melt and then the pond grows bigger. And when more ice in the ground melts, but even more importantly, the soils that were frozen in the ground thaw out and the dead plant animal remains that had been locked away, frozen for thousands of years, they have carbon and that is food for microbes that generate carbon dioxide and methane. And then that gas goes into the atmosphere and causes, leads to some warming, which can cause more permafrost to thaw, more of these lakes to form. And so... The millions of lakes that we have in the Arctic, many of them have formed by permafrost thaw. And when I started out by saying, why were these millions of lakes important? It's one of the reasons they're important is because they are a source of, of carbon, greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. And what is it exactly that happens around the edges of those lakes? Uh, there's other things that happen. I mean, if it warms, does that change sort of the ecology of the area around the lake? More things grow there. I mean, what happens? That's an interesting question. Um, and no one's ever asked it to me, but when I was doing my fieldwork, I noticed the cranberries grew really well in that microclimate of the lake. <laughs> One interesting thing is that the sh most, like Minnesota has a lot of lakes and those shorelines are pretty stable over time periods of your life. Mm -hmm. But in the Arctic, they're not. You could be holding, leaning against a tree one summer, come back the next year and that tree is in the water because the lakes are, don't stay the same size. They are growing and growing, getting bigger and bigger by expanding and eating into the ground and the forest and the tundra around them. And so when all the trees and tundra fall into the lake, it's kind of like they're falling into the digestive tract of the lake where the microbes are decomposing and converting 
previous plants into greenhouse gases. Okay. Um, so see that as permafrost thaws, not just is the carbon cycle getting invoked, but there's nutrients, nitrogen and phosphorus that have been locked away in permafrost and those get released. And so we actually see an enhancement of plant growth in places where permafrost is thawing, both in the water and on land. Okay. Janelle, anything, anything to add? Things that you've seen? Um, no, I'll, I'll keep it. I won't stray from Katie's okay. <laughs> discussion. <laughs> Well, Dr. Anthony, your book also discusses your early work in Russia, and you, you highlight the strong concentration of methane in these in these gases bubbling up from the bottom of these of these thermokarst lakes. Uh, based on the research that both of you have been involved in, uh, what is it people should know and understand about the volume of methane that is now escaping into the atmosphere from these lakes due to melting permafrost and escape of this post potent greenhouse gas from from the depths below? Well. As Janelle said, you can look at almost any lake or stream or wetland or river in the Arctic and you'll see bubbles. So bubbling is ubiquitous. Um, it's a difficult problem to quantify just how much there is coming out. Now we're, we do a lot of field work, but we're also using satellites to quantify that. And there's this part of human nature that... Um, wants to succeed. And if you're a methane scientist, you want to find more methane. And so we, over time, have, I think, had a little bit of a bias. We've looked to study sites where there's lots of gas coming out. And then if you multiply that by the large areas, you can come up with some inflated numbers. And the remote sensing is, is keeping us um, accountable okay. because it can be all the bubbles in all the lakes. And so we're seeing that actually there's not maybe as much as scientists originally thought. Um, if we look back through time, when, when the earth first emerged from the last ice age, the climate was arguably a little warmer, but lakes formed for the first time then in what we call virgin permafrost. This, this whole process was happening before the industrial revolution. And methane emissions from permafrost thaw lakes, these thermocarst lakes was 10 times higher back then, before people, before the present. As climate cooled, during the Holocene, the formation of these lakes slowed down and therefore less methane. Uh, what we've seen, now we use historical aerial photos so we can see where lakes were 60 years ago and where they are now. And we are seeing an acceleration of lake formation and all the new lakes forming have um, three to 10 times higher methane than the rest of the lakes. So it seems like we're standing, today I would say these permafrost is not it's certainly not a major source of carbon to the atmosphere. It's dwarfed by human fossil fuel emissions. Um, but we, if the models are right, we're standing at the threshold of very significant change. The warming that happened in the past happened over thousands of years. The warming that we're modeling to happen is gonna, in the future is over decades. And so the models project um, just tremendous soft permafrost and then associated methane in the future. And it's an exciting time to be a scientist because we get to be out there making those measurements and, and watching, seeing on our instruments that response. So I'm going to ask just, this might sound like an odd question, but it might be a good indicator of what you're seeing up there. Uh, I've read some reports that, that beavers, <laughs> Mother Nature's little engineers, right, have been migrating further north due to climate change. And the beavers are actually now, which is what they do, they create wetlands, but we, they're creating wetlands much further north than we've ever seen it before. Have, have either of you seen these signs as you've been out studying these lakes and remote parts of the Arctic? Uh, have the beavers been moving further north or what other impacts to wildlife have you seen up there uh, as you've been doing your, your, your research in these remote areas? Janelle, I'll start with you. Thanks. Um, I think there are, yeah, there are definitely animal species that are moving further north and you hear it from, you know, when you go out <clears throat> and do travel and people mention that there are animals that are in the area that they don't usually see. So types of fish that come up the coast further. Um, and then, yeah, so there's definitely a differing populations of animals that are coming further north. Katie, anything that you've seen when you've been out doing the research? 
Well, yes. Um, in fact, with the beavers, the site where Janelle and I are working, um, Easty Lake and the Nova film was about that. That is a tundra site. And typically, so the history of beavers in the Arctic is that they were there mostly in the boreal forest regions, though. Then in the 1800s, when fur, their pelts became very valuable, they were so heavily trapped that they became locally extinct. Their populations were heavily depressed. Um, in the early 1900s, regulations tried to control that trapping and their population started to come back. And there was one study that showed as the beavers recolonized Alberta, there was a nine fold increase in lake area. So beavers build dams. Um, Ken Tape wrote the sneak paper called Tundra Be Damned. <laughs> and it's, 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 it's observations of the beavers recolonizing the boreal forest and not just staying there, but moving north into the tundra. And why? Typically, we think of beavers needing the wood of the forest and the tundra doesn't have trees. Also in the tundra, the climate is colder. And so if you have shallow lakes that freeze to the bottom, it reduces the beaver habitat. But there is um, a lot. I've never counted up how many of the lakes I study have beaver influence, but we see it all the time. And it does seem like it's increasing. And we're seeing that expansion out of the boreal forest and into the tundra at our study sites. So yet another interesting impact from a changing climate. Dr. Anthony, I mentioned earlier the work you did in Russia. Uh, I think it's not understating things when I suggest that your early research in Russia really kind of set you on the course you've been on for, for years now. Uh, the you know Russia, the United States, Canada, other nations with territory above the Arctic Circle are all on the Arctic Council. Uh, I think, sadly, the, the events in Ukraine, it's been pretty obvious they've impacted the, the cooperation needed to study climate change above the Arctic Circle. I know you, you have a strong affinity for Russia. How do you see things right now with regard to the science opportunities that are being lost due to this conflict in Ukraine? Well, that, there's, that's a loaded question. Yep. Um, yep. I, try to, I Council... try to hit my guests with tough questions here on this show. <laughs> the Arctic Council is an intergovernmental forum that focuses on issues of sustainable development and protecting the environment. And it has a rotating chair. Russia is the chair right now. It's a two-year position. And because of the war, the other member nations have pulled out and said, we're not going to cooperate right now. So at the, at the policy level, there's huge things going on. Um, last year, 2021, Russia made some big turnaround changes towards committing itself to decarbonization. So there's concern now that that international um, incentive is losing traction. So I think... Something that we may not all be aware of, so much of the money that goes into science happens in the European Arctic countries, but Russia is 70% of the Arctic, whether you're looking at ocean or land or rivers or lakes, Russia is the Arctic. Um, so it has a huge amount of permafrost carbon. And if we are not able to study that by having boots on the ground scientists there, um, we're missing out on data. Long-term monitoring projects have been halted. Projects and field work that was planned is all just coming to a standstill. The Germans have a big presence in um, Arctic science in Russia. They've got field stations and infrastructure and scientific equipment. And they just published, a, I think it was more than a 60-page document listing their equipment that the Russians are not allowed to use out of concern that, use for science, out of concern that it might get misused for war purposes. Mm. So I think what has made science, obviously Russians do good science, but what ha, but because Russia is so, uh, such a big part of the Arctic, it's really important that Russians work together with foreigners. And the history of the success there has depended on individual relationships. Um, I'm very close with the, with the Zimov family, and I think you could find any, any Western scientist that has that personal relationship so my hope is that those relationships will withstand um, the situation and the war. But what I'm also seeing is that a lot of those Russians are getting hurt so much economically that they are not, they're concerned that they cannot maintain the science without the Western support, have to look for other jobs. So are we closing doors to um, all of the momentum that has been built up since the end of the Cold War for doing science in Russia? Yeah, it's a, it's a, 
it's a very difficult situation right now. Right now, there's no question about it. I mean, you, he, hearing you discuss this, I, I was actually before Russia invaded uh, Ukraine. I was part of a group that was having uh, regular Zoom meetings with Russians in Russia, talking specifically about climate change, and it was fascinating to hear them talk about what's happening all across Russia on the research side and even on the policy side, the different, uh, I guess they're called oblasts. Uh, is that the yep. st- equivalent of a state in Russia uh, or region, yeah, regions in Russia? Maybe? Region. Yep. They yep. each have sort of their own policies and uh, pursuits that, that they have outlined for themselves as, to, as far as what they want to do to combat climate change. I, I thought that was really fascinating. Uh, maybe you've seen things like that as well when you've been uh, overstudying in Russia. <laughs> well, a lot of Russians, just like you even hear in the U.S., is, well, is all climate change bad? Russia's pretty cold. I wouldn't matter. <laughs> right. a warmer. Um, the place where I've worked a lot in Siberia isn't too far from the ocean, but it's up on, it's built up on permafrost. And the, the, it's about, the permafrost is about 50 meters thick and t- half ice. So mm. the, those people are concerned because if that permafrost thaws, they become lower than the sea level. And it's so I think it all really depends on where people are at. Yeah. And we we have seen the same kind of things, haven't we, in in northern Alaskan uh, towns that as the permafrost is thawing, uh, that those towns are sort of being captured by the Arctic Ocean. Is that is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So oceanized, for example, um, with Kivalina, Um, Kivalina is on this little tiny spit. Pretty much, I mean, it's separated from the mainland by a, um, a small piece of land. And it is, um, you know, I mean, it's falling into the sea pretty much. So that community is really working hard right now to plan, um, plan out how they're going to move their community sites kind of slowly because not everyone at once can afford to move to the mainland. And so there's been a lot of, you know, um, it's a really hard decision. It's really emotional, especially since they were established there about 50, 60 years ago. Um, In rural Alaska, a lot of those communities, they were established when the schools came in. So it kind of forced people who were originally nomadic to go and live on a town site, an established town site. So now that they've been forced to stay in one place, the the way the environment changes over a lifetime or two generations really has a large impact on um, people's livelihoods. And so, Yes, we're definitely seeing it impact not just a few communities, but most of the communities. There's a lot of erosion and environment change that is happening. And so helping to mitigate that and trying to find ways to in the future think about that and how are we going to be innovative about our structures and what types of houses we put in so that when these changes keep on, you know, they're going to keep on happening um how do we become more resilient to those changes uh so for our audience you're listening to kymn radio am 1080 and fm 95.1 this is national security this week and i'm your host john olson our guests today are dr katie walter anthony and janelle sharp and we're discussing climate change in alaska uh, methane seepage and considerations for american national security uh, we're hitting our third segment here. Uh, I want to jump into the sort of the, the concerning aspects of, uh, of methane and, and the, sci- the science of that. Uh, when we look at, say, the Arctic and even the Antarctic, uh, we know that the climate is warming. Uh, as that happens, you get these sort of, uh, I guess, uh, re- what do you call it, uh, sort of a loop, uh, a feedback loop. Uh, the more water you get rather than white ice, the water absorbs the sun's heat. Uh, in your book, you estimated, uh, based on the science, that there's about 10 times the amount of methane still currently trapped uh, in in the earth than is actually in the atmosphere right now. I think maybe it was five gigatons in the atmosphere, and your estimates were about 50 gigatons still trapped in the earth. Is that is that right, Janelle or uh, Katie? Oh, boy, what the actual numbers are. What, it's an estimate, what obviously. <laughs> Yeah, well, there's two different, when we think about methane in the Arctic, there's 
two primary sources. There's microbial. So in that situation, we've got um, about 1,400 billion tons of carbon in the form of dead plant animal remains. So dead plant and animal remains locked away in frozen soils. When that frozen soil thaws beneath a lake, for example, the freezer door opens and that becomes food from microbes that are, so it's not methane trapped in permafrost, that's carbon, okay. food, microbial food. Okay. And so that's one form, they make methane. Um, and then there's another form that is actually methane itself. And we don't have a good handle on how much methane is trapped in and beneath permafrost and also in the Arctic Ocean. Oceans also store a lot of methane gas in the form of hydrates. Um, and in that case, it's temperature and pressure that really compress the methane and it occupies a small volume, but there's many molecules uh, compressed in there. And so if you lower the temperature or increase the temperature or lower the pressure, it destabilizes that gas. And those hydrates occur on land and in permafrost too. So you can get that, that release. That methane is fossil for the most part. Um, so you can't, <laughs> you can't measure it with carbon dating. Um, I mean, you can measure that it's fossil, but there's, there's not a modern carbon component to it. And a lot of it is associated with oil and natural gas, coal beds, um, also just ancient sedimentary basins. So we like to, per permafrost can be very thick. It can be um, hundreds of meters thick. So how does that gas that's hundreds of meters separated from the atmosphere by hundreds of meters of frozen ground actually get to the atmosphere? We are seeing that there are places where thaw conduits or chimneys are forming and that gas um, comes out. And those are the strongest gas plumes that are occurring. They're not all over the place and we don't have a good handle on how many there are. Um, but just, I think many people have seen these Siberia, these sinkholes in Siberia. It, it's that type of phenomenon where you've had this ancient fossil methane gas trapped below ground and now the ground is warming and that gas is finding a way out. So I'd say it's a wild card in climate science. We don't know how much methane <laughs> is coming out of that geologic source or what the future looks like for its increased release. And could could one of you talk a little bit about the difference in the impact of warming between, you know, CO2 and, and say, methane? Uh, uh, which one is worse and how much worse? <laughs> well, there's a lot more CO2 in the atmosphere than there is methane. Um, methane is the second largest anthropogenic greenhouse gas. Uh, water vapor is not anthropogenic. It's the biggest. <laughs> and anthropogenic so, for our listeners means what? Uh, it, well, any gas that traps incoming solar radiation is a greenhouse gas. So yep. water vapor is one of those. But we don't think of water vapor as a strong culprit for climate warming. Um, <clears throat> we think of carbon dioxide and methane. So on a, if you had one carbon dioxide molecule and one methane molecule, methane is 30 times stronger. It's more potent. However, there's so much more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that it, it currently has a larger radiative forcing. And, and you, you had mentioned the term anthropogenic. Uh, that is that my understanding is that means sort of man-made, right? A man has caused that uh, that that warming. Anthropogenic is has about is about yes. man. Okay. Yes. Human-induced man-made. Okay. Uh, Janelle, what has it been like for you to study this science and, and to witness firsthand over the course of your life how, how things have been changing in Alaska? Hmm. Well, it's kind of a personal um, question, I, guess... I know, but uh, I, I think this I mean, this discussion today is really about the two of you, the research you've been doing, the impact on, on your life, et cetera. So. Mm hmm. So I live in South Central Alaska, so um, the impact isn't nearly as, <clears throat> um, you know, it's got a similar latitude, I think, to Minnesota. So <clears throat> the impact daily and with my generation um, is not super, it hasn't been super noticeable, but um Working for Nana, but also being from the region, um, trying to motivate people and, and you know, changes are happening and they're going to continue to happen, as I said before. And so trying to help adapt 
lifestyles and communities and infrastructure so that it's something that is going to maintain and sustain those small communities who, again, don't have a lot of money um, for the long term. And so I guess that's... um, I, I get I'm very involved and focused on like how it's affecting my um, I call them my people they're my people in the region um, and so it, I was lucky and fortunate on, enough to get a chemistry degree um, and that was just you know there's not a lot of people that have that who come out of the region and so using that to figure out ways that we can make the changes for community, not make the changes for community, but outline the science and outline what um, solutions there are and that exist and taking on exploring different technologies that are coming down the line with everything evolving and how can we adapt our regions and our people so that everyone is resilient and can stay in rural communities and continue subsistence living lifestyles and not just, um, you know, not just survive, but thrive in the region. Mm-hmm. And, and what's next for both of you with regard to the science of, of methane, climate research, and, and related topics? Uh, what do you have planned over the next few years? John, can I add one thing to yeah, the Absolutely, class? absolutely. Like, personal, because we talk about climate change and there are a lot of people very personally impacted, but three things come to mind for me in Alaska. Uh, One is that the trails that I've accessed to get to my research sites are, are, the permafrost is thawing and it's just full of sinkholes. So it's getting so hard to just cross the land. Um, People's, one of the sites I work at, there's a man who lives next to the lake. His house, the permafrost is thawing there. His house, the walls of his house have ripped apart. He can see daylight from his bed. So he, and it's, now it's, he can't, it's been condemned. He can't live there. And that was his life savings to build that house. Um, We have liked to do research up near the Arctic Ocean. And when I first started doing this 20, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, that we could go up there in September um, and make our measurements. The lakes would be frozen. Now, and what, what happens up there is that the sun in the winter doesn't come above the horizon. So the further, now because of warming and the ocean staying open longer, the lakes don't freeze till later, November. But ne- by the time we get there in November, when the ice is safe enough to walk on, it's so dark that it's hard to do our work. So <laughs> um, <clears throat> down south, it's a little bit warmer in the winter, which makes science more comfortable, but it's actually getting in the way of even making scientific observations further north. What I'm hearing from both of you is that the changing climate isn't theoretical anymore. There are actual direct personal impacts on individuals and on communities uh, in these places that are most impacted by climate change, and that's really above the Arctic Circle right now. Yes, that's right. That's your personal experiences, both of you, and, and based on science. <laughs> right. So with regard to the future, uh, that's the science of studying methane, climate research, and what, 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 what do both of you have planned for the next few years? That's a really great question. <laughs> <laughs> Nearing the end of my thesis, so better no, figure no, something out, I No guess. pressure, no pressure, right? <laughs> Um, I'd really like, so my research has mainly been around Easty Lake. So that's that large, um, that large methane seep and the pockmark that's developed underneath the lake from that methane seep. So I think my next step with that project is going to be throwing it out to the world. Um, What types of technology could be implemented there to potentially trap the gas and utilize that regionally or within the region as a small source of energy for any community that's nearby. And Katie? Yeah, I think what Janelle just said is really important because we have, you know, we always hear about 
uh, industry releasing all this fossil methane, but there are natural releases of fossil methane. And the communities where Janelle, the native Alaskan community she's associated with and mining companies up there, they are shipping diesel fuel in. So if they can utilize this methane that's naturally coming out, A, they don't have to ship diesel fuel in and B, by using that methane, and when you burn methane, it turns into carbon dioxide and water vapor. So you prevent the release of a potent greenhouse gas for, for um, lesser, <laughs> lesser evils. Right. Um, well, you know, it's, I think my husband's a farmer and there used to be, there's all around here, all kinds of, in Minnesota, all kinds of abandoned farmsteads, because as technology has increased, it's displaced people. Um, so it's technology plays a big role in our science too. When I first started out, I was taking these bubble, bubble trap samples and I still do that. But now we have these fabulous methane gas analyzers that we can bring to the field with us and they tell us real time. So it used to take a, an hour to make collect four samples. Now within 30 seconds, I can get thousands of samples because, wow. well, was, that was an exaggeration. Within an hour, <laughs> I can get thousands of samples because there's a one, a recording 10 times per second on my methane instrument. So I can move it from here to there in real time. I can see where there's a lot of methane coming out and where there's not. And so that is really um, governing how we do our work. And so far, everything's been heavily field-based, but there's also these wonderful opportunities to work with NASA. They have um, the Avris-NG aircraft sensors of methane. And this, this sensor looks down from the airplane and it can see how much methane is in the whole column of air all the way down to the ground. So over large regions of Alaska and Canada, we're able to map out hot spots of methane release. Of course, you need a person to go there and see what's causing those hot spots. Um, but I'm seeing an increased use of airborne measurements, drones, and satellites to help us um, scale up our, our ground-based measurements. That is fascinating. That actually tells me maybe I should do a, sto a, a show sometime on remote sensing, especially from satellite collection, because of all it, it yes. provides us in the way of science and knowledge. Uh, we just have a few minutes left uh, before I want to talk more about your, your book, uh, Dr. Anthony. What else should, should our listeners know about what is happening in the Arctic region with regard to climate change or about the science that both of you have been pursuing? I'll, I'll open it up. The floor is yours, whatever you want to talk about. I can start. Well, the... Globally, temperatures have been, air temperatures have been increasing, but in the Arctic, it's about three times faster than the rest of the world. Um, and it's because of a process called Arctic amplification. We are seeing as temperature rises, there is a reduction in sea ice, especially in the summertime. And as you mentioned, if you take away that white ice surface and have dark water, um, it's going to absorb more of the incoming solar radiation. There's less snow cover on land. So again, less of that white reflective surface in the darker soils and vegetation are absorbing heat, retaining heat. Glaciers and ice sheets are retreating. So as we are darkening the Arctic, it's absorbing more of the sun's radiation and warming, which causes more ice to melt. And there, that's called the ice albedo feedback. Uh, we've also talked about how permafrost is warming and thawing. And that releases carbon, which can cause more warming and more thawing. So we've got these feedback cycles. Um, we in Alaska have seen since the 1980s um, a, an increase in lake area that seems like it is tightly associated with or coupled to a warming climate during that time, a 40% increase in, in lake area. And in our Fairbanks region, I should say, that's a region specific. But those new lakes that are forming, they emit so much more methane than the older lakes. And so that's evidence, again, of, of this permafrost carbon feedback. Um, as permafrost thaws, it compromises our roads and buildings. So we have a, an infrastructure um, concern. As the sea ice is not there as long anymore, big storms come up and they erode the coastline. Um, so whether there's people and communities there or not, we're seeing tons of, of coastline just going into the ocean at a faster rate than ever before. Um, now, are there some good things? Maybe, maybe not. It, the retreat of sea ice is allow increasing shipping routes um, and opportunities for resource development. 
with climate warming, the Arctic is seeing more ocean acidification than other places, which leads to changes in food webs because you're dissolving um, seashells that are the basis for some food webs. We're seeing an increase in wildfire. And I think the list could go on and on of how this fast warming in the Arctic is translating into changes, not just in the Arctic, but changes that impact the whole globe, because what happens in the Arctic does not stay in the Arctic. Yeah, and there have been huge fires in, in what, both Alaska and uh, Siberia over the last few years. Is that right? Yeah, we've had some, there have been some record fire years. That does not bode well. So unfortunately, we're kind of closing in on the end of the show today. Uh, Dr. Katie Anthony and Janelle Sharp, thank you so much for joining us on National Security This Week. Katie, I know you have a book reading tonight for your new book, Chasing Lakes, here in Northfield at Content Bookstore. Uh, can you tell our, our listeners a little bit more about that event? Sure. Uh, I will, at the event, I'll be talking about the book. Is um, it definitely walks through my story of research on permafrost and climate, methane release in the Arctic, but it's much more than a textbook. It was, um, it's a book about, it's a deeply personal story, and it's a book about the human side of being a scientist. So I go into questions of faith and family, the struggles in marriage um, and careers and raising children with careers. Uh, so I would love to have people come and, and share in that event if they have the time free. Yeah, and, and I can advocate uh, for this. I, I did read your book uh, so I could have some, you know, at least a little bit of background on the science uh, for our show today. Uh, but what I really found about it, it was that you are a tremendous storyteller. Uh, I mean, your ability to sort of bring out your, your deeply personal feelings and, and the journey that you've been on as you've grown as a scientist, as a human being, uh, as a wife and mother, uh, is really, it was a great book. I, I really highly recommend it. And I hope uh, all our listeners who are here in the local area make the journey to Content Bookstore tonight. It starts at uh, 7 o'clock. Is that right? Oh, I think it's at 6 o'clock. At 6 o'clock. Okay. No, it's on <laughs> okay. the I think I think it's six o'clock. Six o'clock. Okay. Well, I hope our listeners who are in the Northfield area make the journey over to Content Bookstore this evening for six o'clock uh, to hear you in person uh, before you take off to head back to Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, John. Thank you both of you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. So that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. I look forward to spending, sharing more time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. Have a great finish to your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week. Since 18.